Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. All right, welcome back to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. For today's episode, we are talking about Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine and what it means for the left in so-called Canada. This is Posey, and today I'm joined by David. Hello. And Misha. Hello. We are going to begin by reading a statement by Left East, which is an Eastern European leftist online publication. The statement is titled, Left East Condemns Putin's Imperial War Against Ukraine, and it was published on February 25th. And we're also going to have a link to the statement in the show notes for this episode. So I'm going to start us off uh, with this statement. The members of Left East Collective are aghast at the violent military aggression that has escalated into war in Ukraine. It threatens to cast our region into bloodshed of a scale that has not been seen in decades. We unequivocally condemn the Kremlin's criminal invasion and call for the withdrawal of Russian troops back to the international border. While we do not forget the responsibility the US, NATO, and its allies bear, for bringing about this war, the clear aggressor in the current situation is the Russian political and economic elite. Our efforts should be to expose Russia's inexcusable imperialist invasion of Ukraine, to which NATO's aggressive expansion and the Ukrainian post-Maidan regime also paved the way. In the revolutionary spirit and in solidarity with the peoples of Ukraine, Russia, and the region, we say no to Moscow today and no to the false choice between Moscow and NATO in the future. We call for an immediate ceasefire and return to the negotiating table. The interests of global capital and its military machines are not worth one more drop of the people's blood, peace, land, and bread. We reject the oligarchic capitalism, authoritarian neoliberalism, and regional anti-communism cultivated by global anti-communist forces that have brought us to this place. As Putin himself threatened in his, quote, history speech on February 21st, quote, do you want decommunization? Well, that suits us just fine, but it is unnecessary, as they say, to stop halfway. We are ready to show you what real decommunization means for Ukraine. Today's attack by the Kremlin represents decommunization going all the way. A small number of right-wing politicians is sure to profiteer, but for most of us, extreme nationalism and far-right ideologies can bring us nothing but suffering and a spiraling cycle of hatred. Economically, this anti-communism has brought us the oligarchic capitalism and poverty that we see in Russia, Ukraine, and the whole of Eastern Europe. Politically, 
that has brought us governments that barely pretend to represent their populations. We state firmly that, one, we hold the Kremlin responsible for this immediate act of war. The Russian state has invaded Ukraine in the name of an utterly reactionary imperial nostalgia and in explicit revolt against the internationalist solidarity exemplified by past and present revolutionary movements in Eastern Europe. Putin's, quote, great Russia nationalism is a criminal and futile attempt to jockey for international standing by denying the rich cultural diversity of Eastern Europe. We stand together with all ethnic communities of the region and with and uphold the vision of peaceful solidarity through struggle for a better world for all. Two, although we hold the Kremlin to be the initiator of this war and the main aggressor today, we bear in mind the responsibilities borne by the United States, many of its allies, and transnational capital for the dire situation. Their refusal to negotiate with Russia over its concerns about the expansion of NATO fan the flames for war, even against calls by many, including the Ukrainian government, for de-escalation. In the wake of the pandemic, economic and political elites in the U.S. and other advanced capitalist states hope to distract the people from their failing democratic legitimacy and the economic hegemony of Euro-Atlantic, quote, integration, end quote. They pushed for the jump-starting of capital accumulation, all very much at the expense of people in Eastern Europe. War-hungry antagonist and latter-day imperialist Putin is now using the dire post-socialist and pandemic-related crisis of social reproduction in Russia and Ukraine alike to ignite nationalist sentiment and profiteer from and reproduce old ethno-nationalist conflicts. Exploitative and expansionist Euro-Atlantic, quote, integration, end quote, has now become an authoritarian casus belli. It has come to full-blown war in Ukraine. Three, we reject regional anti-communism, ironically embodied by Putin and his promise of, quote, decommunization, despite the wolf in sheep's clothing solidarity he receives from parts of the left and all liberal projections of Putin as, quote-unquote, communist. While his government marginalizes and brutalizes the Russian left opposition and anti-fascist, anarchist, and anti-war movements, but also, and crucially, we reject anti-social regimes based on oligarchic capitalism that nurture nationalism and far-right ideologies in Russia, Ukraine, and the petty opportunistic regimes in Eastern Europe, combining militaristic right-wing rhetoric and profiteering from others' misfortune. Number four. We reject the so-called quote-unquote decommunization laws and reforms in both Russia and Ukraine in the last few years. The two quote-unquote enemy sides, Russia and USA slash NATO, are imperialist and capitalist forces that have followed the path of authoritarian anti-communist neoliberalism. This shared path upon which Ukraine also walks is, among other things, testified to by neoliberal labor laws land quote-unquote reforms aimed at preventing access to land, dispossession of small farmers, and economic slash social policy reforms in the last years, which have made people extremely vulnerable to exploitation and risks of poverty, resulting in unprecedented socioeconomic crisis in both Russia and Ukraine, but not only there, as it has a regional and global impact. Five, Unlike current glorification of the Ukrainian government as a fully democratic bearer of freedom, we question Ukraine's post-Maidan regime, its repression of the left and the opposition, 
the banning of major opposition parties and blocking popular opposition media, the discriminatory language policies and lack of any wish to recognize and accept Ukraine's political, ethnic and cultural diversity and its sabotage of the Minsk Accords for the last seven years. Ukraine's extreme quote-unquote decommunization reforms also make it clear that we cannot simply wish for a return to yesterday's unsustainable situation. Six, we reject campus solutions that seek salvation in a racist and militarist Euro-Atlantic unity or revanchist Eurasianism. Instead of supporting genuine struggles for radical social change, democracy, workers' power, inclusiveness, liberation. Seven, in the face of these reactionary ideologies which augur nothing but blood, poverty, and division, we uphold the legacy of the revolutionary movements of Eastern Europe, in whose many traditions we critically pursue the struggle against capitalism, imperialism, and militarism, and the promise of religious, ethnic, and gender equality. This struggle in solidarity with all workers and those oppressed in our region is the only hope for a better future for ethnic Ukrainians and Russians, as well as the historically oppressed groups of the region, Roma, Jewish, Tatar, and migrant communities, women, and sexual minorities. In this spirit, we proclaim our solidarity with political prisoners in Ukraine and Russia, and our support for the movement for radical anti-capitalist democracy and its forces in both countries. We demand immediate ceasefire, anti-war efforts that will affect the economic and political elite, but not the workers and peoples of the affected countries, and negotiations that take stock of past mistakes in the peace process and social and economic policies that brought our region to war. We stand in solidarity with the anti-capitalist and anti-war movements in Ukraine and Russia. We hold no illusions about the promises of liberal democracy, no war but class war. We ask comrades in countries not yet affected by war to press their governments to ensure full humane reception of refugees from Ukraine and all other conflict zones, to demand the charting of a swift course to peace, and to express their solidarity with those whose lives are affected by aggression and jingoism. We have a history of left internationalism and pacifism to guide us. So that is a powerful statement from the uh, editors of, of Left East. And before we move on to talk about a whole number of other questions, I just wanted to comment about a couple of things in the statement. It talks a number of times about uh, so-called anti-communism and Russia's promises of decommunization. And it's important just to understand that anti-communism is politically something which goes back a long time. We could trace it certainly to the to the 1800s, for example, against, uh, you can look at the, the bloody repression of the Paris Commune of 1871, uh, the, the execution of, of thousands of the communards as one of its uh, earliest moments, and then follow it all the way through the 20th century and the history of counter-revolutionary repression. And uh, in certainly this part of the world, the politics uh, that dominated in uh, Canadian state and the U.S. after the Second World War. Uh, There are many different kinds of politicians and political forces that have rallied under that banner of anti-communism, all of which would have in common uh, opposition to not just the kinds of societies, the so-called communist societies of the former Soviet Union and so on, but also they're all ultimately forces that argue that uh, the capitalist status quo needs to be defended and that any attempts to transform it will uh, make things make things worse. And you certainly don't have to accept the idea that the Stalinist USSR or Maoist China or any other of those regimes was genuinely in, in transition to communism to be opposed to, uh, to right-wing anti-communism. So uh, there's a, a wonderful line from the 60s, a slogan that the, the communist world is not communist and the free world is not free. I think it's always remember, worth remembering when we when we think about that. And 
we should just also uh, understand that there have been really aggressive policies in the in, in Russia and in, in Ukraine and other countries of Eastern Europe to so bring about so-called decommunization. So this has been uh, laws that have banned symbols like the hammer and sickle and the red star that have led to the banning of political parties uh, in some cases, and sometimes even individuals being charged for posting certain symbols or things on, on uh, social industry platforms. So that's what the documents uh, from, from Left East is referring to when it talks about those decommunization uh, laws and reforms, which are really efforts by the uh, rulers of those societies now to try to stamp out the, the left and to uh, you know connect in people's minds any attempt to change the present with the you know truly uh, awful repressive bureaucratic dictatorships that call themselves communist uh, in in the past. So that's just a couple of thoughts about those points. Nice. Thanks, David. That That is helpful because when I first read the statement, I, I was not 100% sure um, exactly what was meant by decommunization. A point that I wanted to bring up is this idea of um, the nation state and, you know, who whom we are aligned with, basically. And just the idea that as, you know, ordinary people, as working class people in Winnipeg, we likely have more in common with ordinary working class people in Russia um, than we would with a Canadian capitalist, right? This idea that, you know, beyond nation state lines, uh, there is an international working class which has shared interests against the ruling capitalist class. But at the same time, that doesn't mean the nation state doesn't exist and, and isn't significant. And it's pretty common, especially, you know, in the media, they really try to personify states, right? Like Russia does this, Ukraine does that, US does this, and doesn't really take into account, you know, the class stratification um, and different opposing interests within those states or even globally. So it's important to remember um, that, you know, Russia is not necessarily, the people of Russia definitely aren't the enemy in this situation. Um, but the relationship between states also has, um, also has real significance and there is a hierarchy of power and wealth and, and competition between the capitalists um, of different states. So, you know, USA is, is still at the top. China is rising. Canada is has less power, but still has a lot of power. And same with Russia. But that doesn't mean that Russia can't participate in imperialism, just as it means that Canada can't do imperialism. Of course, we're doing imperialism. So, yeah, that's my main point on this. Does anyone want to join in? Well, I think that's that's uh, helpful for thinking about what's happening because you know we so often just are encouraged to think about the world as divided between nation states and not to think about that global class antagonism there. So I think that is definitely helpful, and we should be consistently against imperialism in all its forms. Right. So if capitalism is unevenly developed global social order, want the powers at the top where capitalism is most developed being dominant. But it's not just the U.S. and everybody else. There's you can think about it as a pyramid with different tiers, um, and we should oppose all imperialist domination, all imperialist aggression, not just the actions of the most powerful imperialist power, the the U.S. And everywhere, imperialism fuels reactionary politics. So we can think just about this current war in, in Ukraine, and how, of course, it's a it's an incredible gift to right wing political forces, ultra nationalists all across Eastern Europe and and beyond, and you know feeds the far right here. Um, in, in, in many places. And, you know, it's, it's pushing, it'll push people into the arms of those who would demonize all Russians and, and so on. 
and just like we could see there was a you know historic imperialist intervention led by the US in Afghanistan and then that was in 2001 and then 2003 against Iraq and that had long-term consequences in that you know region and far beyond that were really reactionary so we can see that imperialism always has these kinds of uh, reactionary effects and it's not i mean it's, it's essential to oppose imperialism under which we live canadian imperialism uh, and the us imperialism that it's uh, allied with but you know we can't be consistently anti-imperialist and we also oppose the imperialist actions of Russia, China, and other states. Absolutely. And I think this separation between thinking about the state as not uh, the people living within that state also is really, really helpful. You know, so much of the time, um, the way international politics is talked about is, you know, just Russia versus Ukraine or um, you know, kind of one flag uh, versus another one. And while, you know, something like a flag might be important as a symbolic kind of political gesture at a point, uh, at a certain point, um, this does kind of tend to reduce uh, the kind of class thinking about um, uh, global politics. And we really, as socialists, want to to emphasize that we, um, where our solidarities uh, lie are with the the people of um, the working people of different countries, not with the the ruling class or the the political elite who are are call, are the ones kind of um, declaring wars and trying to act as if they have the people's will behind them uh, when that really isn't the case. Uh, as we're as we're seeing uh, in a lot of ways with the the different anti-war protests in Russia right now, which are um, I am finding very heartening to see. Uh, and want to kind of find ways to express solidarity with refusal of this war um, that is coming from the people of both Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, and I think that maybe is a good point for thinking about how there's an old socialist principle, which goes back to the outbreak of the First World War, which was a terrible setback, of course, for um, the working class and socialist movements of, of the world. It was a conflict between rival imperialisms. But faced with that disaster and, and the fact that, unfortunately, the leaders of most socialist parties rallied behind their national rulers in that in that war, at least at the beginning, uh, there were always, from the beginning, socialists who held up against uh, the war drive and maintained a, a consistent principled opposition to the war and to militarism. And among those people were uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, they were German socialists. Uh, and Karl Liebknecht uh, has a, a saying that's become famous, that the main enemy is at home which I think is always worth centering in these kinds of moments, because of course we are located in the Canadian state and the main enemy we face is the Canadian ruling class, which uh, has been built through settler colonialism and, you know, continues to exploit and oppress people within this, this territory that it governs. And so of course, first and foremost, we have to oppose the actions of the Canadian government that rules for the capitalist class in, in this society and uh, oppose the actions of Canadian firms, Canadian businesses, uh, at both here and internationally. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, and this sometimes gets misinterpreted by by some on the left, saying that the main enemy is at home does not mean that the rulers of other states are our friends. You know, the idea that the enemy of uh, my enemy is my friend is not uh, one that we should embrace. Far from it. So the rulers of Russia, including Putin, the rulers of of China, for example, these are enemies of the working class and uh, oppressed people around the world just as much as the, the rulers of the Canadian state are. So we can think about uh, our responsibilities, 
which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, soon, in in relation to this war from the starting point about the, the main enemy is at home, but that that doesn't mean that we will try to in any way gloss over the responsibility of uh, the Russian government here or to uh, deny that Putin is an enemy of the, the workers of the world. Thank you, David. I think that really, really adds a lot to thinking about how to approach uh, thinking about this conflict and kind of where we stand as as socialists um, uh, in so-called Canada uh, when the war seems very uh, far away in some ways. Uh, so I want to kind of talk about um, uh, why NATO military intervention um, would be disastrous and kind of talk a little bit about uh, NATO and what this uh, piece that we just read has to say about it. So the main uh, kind of proposal for NATO military intervention right now is uh, creating a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, and this would um, pretty directly lead to a an all-out war between NATO and Russia. This would escalate the situation uh, quite severely. It would no longer just be, um, you know, while other countries are supplying uh, weapons, uh, Canada is sort of, you know, been uh, said it, that it is supplying uh, lethal aid to Ukraine. This would uh, go beyond just uh, indirect support, or I guess still direct support, um, but uh, become a an all-out war, um, which would make the the conflict uh, reach a much greater scale, which would have disastrous effects for the world. It would likely make the conflict uh, much longer, um, given that both Russia and NATO are have nuclear capabilities. This is obviously a, a serious concern. The kind of response that often comes up um, when this is uh, this kind of perspective is is shared, though, is you know, well, if if NATO doesn't get involved, won't Ukraine just be you know crushed by by Russia? I think that that makes sense as a, a response that a lot of people would have, but. I, I I think at this point there is a absolutely a kind of diplomatic avenue for resolving the conflict that should be prioritized above all uh, above any form of further escalating the conflict. We are uh, currently seeing um, the conflict not be incredibly decisive in terms of Russia's attempted occupation of parts of Ukraine. So. I, I would caution against those who are are saying that NATO should just immediately get involved um, as a way to to stop Russia because that could in fact make things much more um, much more dire for for everyone involved. The other part of this is um, why leftists should oppose uh, Canadian membership in in NATO, um, and this goes beyond the immediate scope of looking at the conflict. In Ukraine at the moment, and towards thinking about you know Canada's long history as a part of NATO, the different wars that it has gotten involved in um, on behalf of NATO, and the way that this uh, organization, um, which was created during the Cold War uh, in order to uh, counter the or kind of express kind of political influence uh, and military influence on the Soviet Union, um, it was not disbanded after the Soviet Union fell, and in fact uh, ended up expanding uh, quite significantly in recent decades. The There's a, a kind of good argument that uh, because of what NATO's initial intended purpose was and the kind of current reality, it's no longer no longer necessary and should be disbanded on that those grounds. Um, I think also it's worth looking at the role that NATO has played in terms of 
kind of giving giving credence to arms sales and the kind of expansion of the the military industrial complex and the role that uh, Canada has played in terms of supplying weapons internationally and uh, profiteering off of war that I think should be should be condemned uh, by leftists here and uh, should NATO, Canada's uh, membership in NATO is is absolutely something that we should um, oppose. Uh, for those reasons. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit if others have kind of more background on on this or other things that they'd like to add. Yeah, I would just add, I think that's a really good point, Misha. You know, there's more money in war than there is in diplomacy. And we we often hear like the defense money stuff um, in the States, but it's, it's also really important to think about how Canada, um, Canadian companies profit off of war. Like I think, so the Ottawa Citizen reported last month that there's like an initiative um, by an Ontario company, the Canadian Commercial Corporation, uh, to build uh, ammunition factory in Ukraine. So like Canada has been ready um, to, to make money off of this conflict since before the invasion. You know, this also relates to, or at least I would make the connection to, because I'm, you know, from Ontario, the Saudi arms deal that Canada, you know, sold a lot of light armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia um, and, you know, had no qualms about how, uh, you know, Canadian weapons were being used um, against Yemeni people. And something that, you know, to just quickly related to the pandemic, I know that that factory in London, Ontario, that makes light um, armored vehicles as a part of that arms deal, I think it's a general dynamics land system. Uh, they weren't, they were a factory that wasn't shut down at all in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So while everything else is being shut down, (laughs) you know, that was, that factory was considered uh, essential work, right? That couldn't be shut down. So, you know, just to kind of connect it to the the interests of the Canadian state and, um, you know, and it's really horrible to think about, but just that there is money in in, uh, lethal aid and in... Um, you know, so-called defense. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really great point that kind of makes some of those um, critiques of NATO really concrete. The, you know, the formation of NATO as a way of organizing the major powers of Western capitalism uh, against the USSR, you know, beginning of the Cold War, and uh, also to assert US dominance within that against an over Western European societies, because it was also a power played by the US you know that was the the original mandate, the original purpose, and and now it's uh, obviously as people have said, it's it's evolved. It's now a much larger organization, which it then is something through which Western imperialist power gets projected beyond Europe as well as as well as within Europe. So it was reactionary at the start; <laughs> it's reactionary today. Absolutely, one uh, kind of common trope that we're seeing a lot in different media depictions of. Uh our kind of media narratives about uh, what is going on right now are these different, you know, comparisons to World War II, um, different people saying that this is, you know, the greatest clash of uh, countries that has happened since the Second World War, which is uh, kind of, you have to overlook a whole lot of the world and a whole lot of history to make that kind of claim. Um, and then a lot of uh, different comparisons that will uh, compare Putin to Hitler and really focus on uh, kind of picking apart his personality as some sort of, as a kind of conniving 
uh, evil dictator who's kind of out to to conquer the world. So I was wondering what uh, what people kind of have to say about um, these sort of depictions uh, that we're seeing around. Yeah, well, I think the first thing I would say, you know, as a as a socialist, that that's frustrating about the you know personality narrative of this being like one man's, yeah, as you said, conniving manifest destiny, Alexander the Great kind of self-important vision, is that it really erases any sort of um, economic reasons for, you know, invasion. And it also like erases the power of um, other members of the Russian ruling class. Like Putin has a lot of power, but he's not the only powerful interest in, in this decision to invade. And I find that frustrating. And I, and I also think the comparisons to World War II are just to me, at least a thinly veiled, you know, because World War II, especially in Canada and the States, like has such a, you know, we have so much World War II media and so much of that is taught in schools that I think we all kind of have a, you know, a, an automatic reaction to the idea that like that's the example of like very justified and important uh, military intervention by the West that, you know, saved the world and saved Europe and all these sort of things. And not to say that I don't want to talk about, you know, necessarily what happened in World War II, but just that that narrative is is very strong. So I think making those comparisons is really kind of trying to, to gear up the population to support um, NATO military intervention as an idea of like, you know, a justified war from our perspective. Yes, and it will probably reveal something about my age to say that I remember the demonization of Saddam Hussein, um, ruler, you know, president of Iraq as as a Hitler that happened uh, at the time of the 1991 uh, Gulf War and and later as well. So uh, there's a long history of uh, this being done against whoever is the enemy number one of the moment for Western ruling classes. Oh, yeah. I was just also thinking about the way that I feel like this war is kind of being talked about as, as if it's the kind of only major you know, military event that has happened, uh, or that it's kind of unprecedented in a lot of ways. And um, well, it, it certainly is extremely serious and really concerning. It is uh, kind of fascinating that that has happened when, you know, US troops only left Afghanistan in the fall. Uh, that history kind of is, it seems like there's a, a move to kind of try and forget um, the uh, the different legacies of U.S. imperialism and of NATO uh, imperialism that have happened um, by kind of creating this this ultimate uh, this ultimate enemy that is the only one to kind of focus on uh, now. So it's it's interesting the sort of historical uh, rethinking that happens in a in these media uh, narratives. Even the the war that happened in Yugoslavia in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. and, and the way that there was in fact a Western military intervention uh, at the end of the 90s, uh, there seems to have vanished from the mainstream media's uh, way of talking about history here. Yeah, it is honestly quite stunning. Like as you said, Misha, you know, the American troops have just left Afghanistan. Um, the kind of erasure of that we've had this 20 year war. Um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and it's just kind of been forgotten about and dropped very quickly. Do we want to talk about sanctions now? Sure, yeah, we can we can do that. So sanctions uh against Russia are kind of one of the I guess non-military proposals for uh kind of what to do about the um the conflict that is uh getting a lot of, of traction right now uh and that uh is currently being pursued in a pretty big way. And uh we're 
going to discuss a little bit uh, for why we should not call for uh, for sanctions. This, uh, in some ways, maybe for some listeners, might seem counterintuitive if this is you know a, a non uh, directly military way of in- of intervening if it's targeting you know individuals rather than the, the whole uh, country as is kind of often at least that's the way it is often uh, portrayed. The reality is that a lot of the the different targeting uh, targeted sanctions against individuals um, they'll be a nuisance definitely towards uh, uh, individuals in the the political elite in Russia, but they they will not do a whole lot to. Um, to stop what is happening or to really kind of freeze individuals' uh, kind of capacity to be uh, making making high-up decisions. The other uh, kind of major thing that is happening right now is the uh, sanctions against Russia's central bank. Um, and this is something that is, uh, uh, is not a kind of specifically uh, individually targeted sanction. It is um, going to affect the whole country in a very large way. Um, it will likely and possibly has already kind of caused a, a run on the banks as uh, the ruble is losing losing value. So people want to to take out their currency and exchange it as fast as they can for something that will kind of uh, retain value better. And this will really hurt um, everyday uh, people in in Russia uh, as their their currency kind of ceases to have um, have much value and as um, the necessities for life become quite expensive. Um, this will cause a great deal of, of, of suffering for the majority of people. Uh, the other kind of element of uh, sanctions, which is definitely a, a problem, is that it will you know lead to kind of isolation of Russia and uh, kind of further division between um, you know Russia and the rest of uh, you know the Western world, um, which could possibly kind of uh, sort of entrench or play a part in deepening kind of uh, a long-term division or hostility that could be uh, hard to over overcome if if different kind of uh, kind of institutional separations are made in that kind of way. This is something also I'm sure other people have uh, things to add to or kind of perspectives to to bring along with this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's is exactly right. I think you can easily imagine how uh, as ordinary people's living standards get hammered uh, by Western economic sanctions uh, that you can see Putin and and his allies trying to whip up, you know, Russian nationalism even further, right, and appealing to people to support the Russian state against the West because look at what they're doing to us. Um, so that's that's a, you know, a risk in the situation too. And in general, I think we shouldn't think about sanctions as an alternative to war. But sanctions are really just economic warfare. They are an act of war, and so war, war by other means. And and so they're not something we could think about really as an alternative. Now th- there are some you know historical exceptions. I think in general we should oppose as socialists as internationalists we should um, these kinds of sanctions. But you know there are some historical exceptions. For example, in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa in the 1980s, when you had the mass movement against apartheid there actually calling on West people in the West in the anti-apartheid movement to demand sanctions. And right now with the struggle uh, for national liberation in Palestine people calling uh, for sanctions against Israel. I mean, those are situations where the oppressed themselves are are calling for them and where the push for sanctions actually leads us to actually clash with our own governments. Whereas here, the sanctions are actually a tactic of Western governments, right? Um, which is, I think, a, a very different kind of a, a situation than, uh, for example, sanctions on Israel today. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, totally, David. I think it's a good point that because I think it's often framed as the media of, you know, this is like a, a, a non-violent or blood-free non-war thing to do, a slap on the wrist um, with sanctions. But we know from you know the sanctions that U.S. has against um, other nations and, and same with Canada, like sanctions cause a lot of death and suffering over time. And it's not, yeah, as, as you said, Misha, it's hurts um, ordinary people and, and working class people in, within those states. There is also, we should just mention, it's a, you know, often not thought about now because it's not a, a strong tradition now, but there is a long and very honorable working class tradition of direct action in solidarity um, rather than actions by states. So you know, workers, for example, refusing to load or unload cargo either coming from or going to a country because of something that's happening there. You could see a situation where longshore workers, you know, dock workers or people in the aviation industry might want to refuse to handle Russian goods or uh, things like that. And I think that's, that's very different if it's an act of, of worker solidarity where people are taking things into their own hands uh, to uh, express their solidarity. I think that that's quite different, really, than what we're talking about here in terms of sanctions by states against Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really helpful point. So that leads us to talking about, you know, our role. Um, you did, So, yeah, don't throw your vodka down the sink or whatever <laughs> people are doing. Um, uh, but, yeah, what are the, the next kind of questions I have? for us to address our, you know, what are the political responsibilities of, of socialists here with respect to the war? Um, you know, does it even matter what we we say or do? There does seem to be, you know, on social media, a rush for statements and, and positions and standing with Ukraine. You know, does that make a, a difference? Does it make an impact? Um, so I want to propose, and, you know, in the spirit of the the statement that we read, uh, that there are some things that, that we can do in you know condemning Russia's imperialist invasion of Ukraine, but we can also pressure the Canadian government um, to do some things. To we want them to pursue de-escalation, not send military equipment and build ammo factories, and also it's it's very important that the Canadian government welcome refugees from Ukraine as well as you know refugees from all sorts of displacement from from war, imperialism, and and climate crisis all over the world. We could be accepting a lot more refugees from a lot more places. And uh, I think it's also very important that um, we support, uh, Misha, I think you mentioned it earlier, you know, grassroots anti-war movements um, existing in, in Russia, as well as, of course, in Ukraine. Do you, either yeah, of you I, have any thoughts on, on why, why our stance in Winnipeg matters? I, mean, I think it's a good question, because some people might think, well, uh, you know, we're so far away, socialists, forces in this part of the world are, are very weak does it does it really matter but i'm going to suggest that it does matter uh, because you know first first of all it does matter how we understand the world it has consequences for our actions maybe you know both in, in the they can be immediate consequences but they can be long-term consequences as well i mean it really does make a difference whether you take an approach that starts with the idea of neither washington nor moscow neither washington nor moscow nor, nor beijing right opposition to ruling classes uh, and imperialism everywhere uh, versus falling in behind our own government, our own rulers at, at time of war, or sympathizing with the other side under the misguided belief that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because I think it it does affect how we do all, all sorts of things. And we should also try to, wherever possible, uh, even if it's on a very, very, very small scale, uh, do things that we would want to do on a larger scale if 
our forces were larger. So if there are things that we can do that would build public understanding and protest against uh, Canadian government policy and do things that would aid those, um, act in solidarity with those people who are against the war in Russia, you know, those are all things that, that we should do, even if the scale on which we can do them right now is, is really tiny. Nonetheless, I think we should try to be clear on our principles, be clear on our understanding, and then try to act on those, even if the ways we try to act on them uh, are small, because these are things that other people will see. You know, we can engage in conversations with other people about it. We can take public action where it's possible to do that. Uh, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, visible to to people in other parts of the world as well, right? I mean, one of the the problems um, for the people who've been organizing on the the left inside Ukraine has been, you know, they've felt that, and they're, they're right, that a whole section of the Western left uh, has been really hostile to them and sympathetic to uh, to Russia. And, you know, there are some very crude depictions of Ukraine as being dominated by, by fascists and so on, which are, you know, obviously there is a really serious problem with the far right in, in Western Europe, as there is so in Eastern Europe, as there is elsewhere, but uh, that's of no help to the people who are actually on the ground fighting against it there. We, we need to build a left here that's you know, internationalist and really clear that we stand opposed both to the main enemy at home, but also to the, the uh, rulers of, of Russia, China, for example. Great. Do you have any final thoughts, Misha? Yeah, I, I had kind of a thought, but it's not it's not super worked out. So I'm not sure if it kind of, you know, fits very well with uh, with the podcast or like we can absolutely cut it. But I guess I've been I've been thinking a lot about, you know, there is a pretty large uh, Ukrainian diaspora in in Canada and on the prairies in particular. And I've been kind of thinking about like how like there's a lot of people different doing different like rallies in support of Ukraine and uh, and whatnot that um, makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. This these are communities that it is much more close to home than it is for uh for for non like people kind of without a connection to Ukraine um but yet at the same time I kind of get you know it's very much not across the board but there is sometimes like a kind of very nationalist element to it um and sometimes that becomes kind of the only maybe the only kind of way that that sentiment can be expressed and I guess I've been thinking about like how do you how do we kind of like show solidarity with like with that community in a way that also kind of doesn't like be like kind of very black and white about uh you know you everything about Ukraine is good and and uh and kind of nothing to to critique about that um and that might just be more a, a, a an issue of like finding the you know those who are on the left and kind of having those conversations as well in in the Ukrainian diaspora and kind of connecting with them and seeing what they're what they're saying. Um, but yeah, I was curious about if you had thoughts about about that issue. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, ideally, it would be great to be able to have a contingent, you know, that kind of at that kind of rally with a very large banner that would say something like uh, "Russia out of Ukraine, no to NATO." You know, to have an independent political uh, presence uh, with uh, which was clearly not nationalist uh, in in that. Uh, in that situation, which might take some doing, and there could be some challenges making that making that happen and doing it in a way that's reasonably safe for the participants. Yeah, I think it would just have to be done in, in a careful way because uh, you know there could be tensions at a rally for a contingent like that. But uh, I think it, because we are opposed to this war, uh, if there are opportunities to organize that kind of a, a political contingent uh, at a demonstration called by Ukrainian Canadian Congress or, or groups like that, then that would be something that would be would be worth doing because certainly not everybody going there is a supporter of the 
right-wing politics of that particular organization. Far from it. And sure. it's just a question about the, the left and the city needing to get itself organized, uh, clear about what our position is, and then find a way of, of uniting uh, for that kind of an action. Totally. And I think this connects kind of back to the the conflation of like the, the state with the people, you know, that there is Ukrainian mm. identity exists separate from the Ukrainian state. And I think that, you know, the, that there is such a strong Ukrainian Canadian presence and, and continuing culture on the prairies is like evidence of, of that. And yeah, that to support, support Ukrainian people against Russian imperialism is not to just support everything, um, the state of Ukraine does. And as you said, David, like there is Ukrainian nationalism that is far right and um, quite scary. Uh, anyways, it's not a fully formed thought, but I, I think that it's a, it's a really good point, Misha, that there is like a, a particular resonance. Um, and, and yeah, even though it is far away, like this conflict for many people in Manitoba is close to home as well. Definitely. And it, the breadth of support is really, you know, remarkable. There's a lot of uh, support among Indigenous people in this region um, for, you know, uh, Ukraine uh, at this time. And some interesting political discussions happening about that and the relation, the his, different historical relationships between, um, you know, Ukrainians and Indigenous people on the prairies. Uh, and, you know, clearly th that is not a politics that's going to be aligned with the uh, you know, the right-wing nationalists in the uh, in the Ukrainian Canadian community. So there are lots of people who, you know, maybe because they don't, for, for whatever reason, they might put something on social media, you know, with the Ukrainian flag in a way that I wouldn't agree with, for example. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can somehow write them off as uh, nothing but right-wing nationalists or something like that. That would be a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a good place to end it. I will um, tell our listeners that we're going to have lots of links of things that we recommend to read and, and other things to listen to um, in these podcast notes. Um, so recommend checking those things out if you'd like to learn more about uh, the conflict from a, a socialist perspective. And is there anything else either of you would like to add? And we may also have something to add there in terms of uh, organizations in Ukraine uh, that people can donate to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity winnipeg.ca.